Well, brethren, we do need to stir ourselves, obviously, in preparation for the kingdom of God. Sometimes we do let down. We need this weekly service to stir ourselves, to motivate each other, to grow. And obviously, God knows that very much. But a lot of things are happening in the world, and I hope all of you can really recognize it and be stirred by that. I'm not going to give a full prophetic sermon today, but just comment, and maybe we should give one, or Dr. Winnell might when he gets back from Europe and Africa. But uh, at any rate, most of you know the Middle East peace process, so-called, is really breaking down, and uh, it's going to be awful there the next several years. The terrible terrorist organization, Hamas, has taken over Palestine, and now they're shooting each other, even then the Fatah movement over there, and they have dedicated themselves to the destruction of the state of Israel. And we, Americans, have dedicated ourselves to the protection of Israel. So that puts us, of course, directly at odds with them. And uh, it's going to get very bloody before it gets over with. Also, as you know, Iran has said repeatedly, including again yesterday, they will not back down on their plan to build atomic weapons. They are going right ahead with their enrichment program, which everyone knows is going to be used for building atomic bombs. Also, the Iraq war is going bad and worse. And, of course, our troops there, as several articles have come out just in the last few days, perhaps some of you have seen them. I've seen about three different ones, one in our local paper, one in the Wall Street Journal, and one in a magazine. Our services, our forces, military forces, are being decimated. They're being stretched too thin. Stretched too thin. We have too much to do, and they're breaking down. Their equipment is breaking down. The morale is breaking down. And if any other new war is needed, uh, we can't do much. We can't attack Iran because we're already stretched too thin, for instance. The whole idea of President Bush, uh, Bush's push for democracy in the Middle East is also breaking down. And I've said that, remember, in the articles I've written, the co-worker letters, the sermons, that will not happen. Democracy has never been God's way, and it's not going to be God's way. You know, a lot of us Americans take democracy for granted, and I did all my life. I was in the ROTC, the Reserve Officers Training Corps, and then later in our junior college, they didn't have a ROTC, they had a, a, a Naval Reserve, so I joined that. When I was 14 and a half, I ran off to join the Marines in the war. I wanted to be a hero. And I always stood very straight when they played the Star-Spangled Banner. And I was, you know, we're Americans and we have democracy. And that's good. It is one of the best human forms of government. But you know, as you read articles about it, democracy is frankly a rather new form of government. A rather new form of government. For about the 4,000 years of human history, they didn't have democracy. And then the Greeks instituted some, a limited form of democracy, and most nations have never had full democracy, and many nations who talk about it don't really practice it even today. And as many articles have come out from distinguished authors like George Will, we have a sort of a judgeocracy or plutocracy uh, with these hotshots running the government, or sometimes the judges, and not a real democracy anyway when you understand it. But that's not God's way and never has been. Meanwhile, the European Union managers, those behind the scenes in Brussels, are pushing swiftly ahead just as if the Constitution, that proposed European Constitution, had been ratified. And if you read my coworker letter, I commented on the Daily Mail article, one of the largest circulation newspapers in Britain had a full article on that. 
And I just quoted a tiny part of it. But they're taking over the police force from the inside. They're taking over the environmental agency, the health services, everything in Britain as if the Constitution had already been ratified. They don't have that authority, but they're, the, the, our local officials are just letting them do it. So when the beast, the coming dictator, and the coming false prophet show up, a tremendous amount of preparation will already have been accomplished, brethren. It won't take them years and years to get the whole thing going. It's going to have swiftly, happen swiftly. And God indicates many will be astonished when this thing rises up. So we do need to be ready within a very few years why we need to realize this false prophet and beast will rise up and things will begin to change in the whole world scene. We do need as to follow Jesus Christ's instruction to watch and to pray. Watch world events and pray about these things and draw close to God because we don't have forever. Time is short. We can't set an exact date, but time is short. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read this. And turn back there with me if you would. I'm going to get a little tea here. Second Peter chapter 3, if you would, and beginning in verse 11. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. People are not going to expect all these things when they begin to break loose in which the heavens will pass away with great noise. Now, that's the very final, final part of it. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. In the larger sense, brethren, a lot of you know the day of the Lord is a time that begins with the great tribulation and extends clear on through beyond the new heaven and the new earth. In a limited sense, you have, of course, the tribulation and then the heavenly signs and then the immediate time of God's intervention. But the larger sense, we've always discussed that blows even longer and includes this. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, and most of you know the prophecy showing this whole earth will be dissolved. That's hard to understand, but why, you know, if you and I are made spirit beings, and we look back later, of course we would be spirit and we wouldn't have the same reaction, I'm sure, when we're spirit, but we would look back and see, well, here's the hill where I killed this man, or hills, here's the private forest or wherever where I committed adultery with this woman. Just be honest, things like that have happened in the past. God's going to wipe the earth clean. The mountains, the valleys, everything that is will be burned up, will be dissolved, everything. And there will be nothing around to remind us of the past. There will be new heavens and a new earth, finally. Totally new. So it's good to realize our life is like a vapor, as James said. A wisp of smoke. We're here for a little while, and just like a little wisp of smoke comes out of a chimney, and maybe just a few seconds later, a tiny breeze just blows it away. It's gone. You never see it again. That's our lives compared to God and compared to eternity. So we want to use the time we have the right way. We really should think about that very much. Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? holy conduct, looking for and hasting the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements melt with fervent heat. So we do need to be holy, and we do need to be like God in every way, and practice godliness. And many of us let down our guard, many of our youth, 
have a sort of an underground culture where they go around doing things they ought not do at all. And that's in all branches of the church of God, frankly. I have reason to know that. It's terrible. It really is. And I'm ashamed of it. And I'm very sorry. We ought to do everything we can to just get over that, get completely over that. But we've got to get do all we can to stop it. And many of our older people do. I know even back in Worldwide they were doing this kind of thing. As I said, when I was at Big Sandy, I found that several men right in the congregation in Big Sandy were beating their wives physically. And I got up and railed on them in the service. I'm not that big and I was already getting old, but I still do that. <laughs> I mean, I just started, I want to imitate it, but my wife remember, I really talked loud. I railed on them and said, you so-and-so, you're cowards beating up on women. What's wrong with you? If you want to talk to someone, you come and talk to me. And I said, if I find out or some of you women let me know, I'll come and visit you and visit your husband. If I have to come to your house, I might bring my friend. I was going to bring Joe Campbell with me. <clears throat> Joe was, uh, he was six foot six and about 250 pounds. He was on the uh, Super Bowl winning Oakland Raiders. And then he came to Ambassador College because his mother had been a church member. So he later came and then later I hired him in the, the athletic staff at Big Sandy. And he was one of the most powerfully built men I've ever known personally. Just being around, you know, I saw Joe right up close in the locker room and uh, regularly. Of course, I'd go up to him, you know, 5'10 and 100 and, 160 or something, and he was he was six foot six and 250 or 60. I think he was about 250. And I'd say, "You ready, Joe?" And he'd say, "Yeah." And he'd laugh. And <laughs> luckily, <laughs> he said, "He said they say the one that gets in the first bowl usually wins." I said, "Well, I'm not sure I can reach you up there." <laughs> so I enjoyed horsing around. But I would have gone out. I didn't quite. I might have taken someone in case they were big and mean or something. But uh, I've been in fights before, and I would be willing to talk to them even if they did take a swing at me. That's not a problem. But they were cowards, and they would not do that. And we had adulterers, and we had drunkards, and we had all kinds of people around the congregation there and in Pasadena. I could name them. I'm not, I'm not going to do that, but you know what I mean. I know what I'm talking about. And we have such people in the church today. I think the percentage is a lot smaller but nevertheless, we have these people and we've got to understand it. And you folks are into that kind of thing. And I'm not just preaching to you people here, but around the world. I hope you can understand. God is aware. I may not know all the details, but God Almighty does. And He wants us to clean our act up. Within the next nine or ten weeks, we're going to be taking the bread and the wine. We're going to be taking Christ's Passover. Now, this is not a regular pre-Passover sermon, but let's think about that in this regard at least. We'd better really begin to think about why we're here and get ready. So we've got to conduct ourselves in holy conduct and godliness. And I hope that all of us can learn to do that. Use the time we have the right way while we are alive. As we get older, and as I get older, I sometimes not every morning, but I'll literally, one of the first things I'll get up and, and I pray in the morning, I'll say, Father in heaven, thank you for another day to serve you and serve your people because I'm living on borrowed time. I'm five or five and a half years older than King David was and I know that. I know that. So a lot of you can realize that your lives may not last forever and you young folks don't think you're going to live forever necessarily in this life. My friend, very dear friend, Richard David Armstrong died 
old and full of days? No, he was 29 years old and got smashed in this car accident. And he was not driving and no one was drunk. It was a fault of the California highway system, frankly, the way they had the signs mismarked. I don't want to go into the details. Another man was driving who was not drunk and didn't mean it that way at all. It was a terrible thing. Turn back to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. It says here in verse 11, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness. And we try to do that to a limited extent. That's not our main calling, but we try to do that to a certain extent on our television programs and in our magazines showing how our nation is turning away and away and further away from God Almighty. For it's a shameful thing even to speak of those things done by them in secret. We don't have to directly describe all the perverted actions of men and women and women with women and men with men and everything else. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly. In other words, very thoughtfully and carefully in the way you live, brethren. Walk very carefully, not as fools. A lot of young people, without realizing it, are fools. It takes some horrible tragedy to wake them up. I'm not trying to preach down to you young people. I went through things like that too and I had to learn but the things which I suffered. We learn by suffering. But don't conduct yourself as fools but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Doesn't mean each day is an evil day or has intrinsic evil in it but the society is evil. The, the, the age is evil. We're living in an evil age surrounded by images of fornication, adultery, drunkenness, wild living every time you push the button and the tube goes on. Satan's broadcasting system, television, the internet is often used as well as other avenues as Satan's broadcasting system, SBS. And that's often what it is. In fact, that's usually what it is. Satan's broadcasting system, pouring images of violence and sex and perversion, and selfishness, and vanity, and greed into your mind. They want you to buy things you don't need with money you don't have. And they want you to get all excited about this and that and lead you astray. Conduct yourself as wise, redeeming the time, buying back the time. How do you redeem your watch? If you take your watch to the hop shop, you have to redeem it. You have to go there and literally pay money and buy it back. And so God uses that analogy here in this verse. It's as though the time is already slipping through your fingers. Automatically in this age, it seems our time is taken up. Our time tends to be misused because every time we turn around, the phone rings or the television pops on or something happens and then our time is wasted. Our time is taken up with things that are not necessary and are distracting and often are evil. So it's very easy to let that time be taken from us, and as I've told you so many time, times, our life is our time. Our time is our life. As God looks down from heaven, here's my sermon title, by the way. I'm covering a lot of aspects of this about our time and being close to God and so on. But as God looks down from heaven, how does God view you? How does God view you? You know how 
some of the Pharisees and leaders in Jesus' time were more concerned about men because they loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. How does God view you? He's the only one that can save you. Your friends can't save you. Your relatives can't save you. And your brethren down there in Australia and Perth and Brisbane and Adelaide as we have our church down there. My wife and I hope to go back. You brethren in South Africa, you brethren around the world, your friends and relatives in the world are in the church. They can't save you. You people right here, these people around here can't save you. Only God can save you. And He knows exactly what you're doing. And He knows exactly how you're using your life and using your time. Turn to 2 Corinthians 13. Here, of course, is a fundamental scripture, but I'll turn and read it nevertheless. And it does tie in with our whole life all year long, not just the Passover. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. A lot of our brethren are not in the faith. I was talking to one of our leading men the other day, and we both agreed, Mr. Armstrong said near the end of his life, that maybe one only about a tithe, one-tenth of the brethren were really converted. But before that, he used to say, I think not more than half of you are converted. Well, I think it's about the, that way with us. I think we have more than a tenth, because a lot of you brethren have been sifted through the trials and the tests, and you're still here. And I hope it's a lot more than half. But an awful lot of people, even in our church, are not fully converted. And it's very obvious but the things that happen and the things that are being done. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Christ must be living in you unless you indeed are disqualified. That's a very important thing. Is Christ really living in you? Or are you really walking on the fringe all the time and Christ is not actually living in the, you in the way you worship and serve and obey God and the way you love and serve and treat and forgive and share with and lay down your life for your brethren and so on. Is Christ in you? You have to examine yourselves about that. So as Passover approaches, we should be reflecting Jesus Christ more and more every month and every year through the help of Christ, of course, living within us. In Romans 12, Romans chapter 12, brethren, again, a very classic scripture here. I call it the Christian living chapter. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, and 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter, and Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. Romans 12 is what we could call the Christian living chapter. <laughs> Verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, not a lazy sacrifice. In fact, the Greek word here, as you look it up in the commentaries, and some translations have it, it is just living. It's a lively, an energetic sacrifice. You know, if you're fishing and you sometimes can get a catfish or some types of fish, it's just kind of a slow thing. But one of the most exciting kinds of fishing is bass fishing. And you get a bass on the line, and even though it's just two or three pounds, it's going, whoa, your line goes, whoa, you know, and your pole's just going like that. It's very exciting. And uh, God wants us to be lively. He wants us to be on fire. The only major sin of the Laodiceans, as I've said repeatedly, remember, a lot of nice people are Laodiceans. They're nice people. He does not condemn them for terrible sin, 
he does not condemn them for false doctrine. He says, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. So we want to be lively sacrifices, zealous and fire for God, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or your intelligent service. It's not intelligent anymore when you understand God's plan to offer an animal. God does not want that anymore since the Christ sacrifice of Christ. But He does want you to give your body as a living sacrifice to God. That you say, God, here's my body. Here's my life. I do not belong to myself anymore. I belong to you. Please take me and use me. And really mean that. And do not be conformed to the world. Don't be like the world, because if you watch TV all the time, if you read these worldly magazines all the time, if you get these computer things and computer games and watch the crazy stuff and even the vile, perverted sex things on the computers, pretty soon your mind is seared. The things that maybe would have offended you, you know, at first, don't offend you anymore. You keep seeing it and after, well, it's no big deal, no big deal. Maybe not to you, but it is a big deal to God. Is God offended by violence in his personal sense? Oh my, there's blood out there. No. God's going to fill the whole valley of Jehoshaphat with blood later on. Is God offended by sex? No. God made us male and female. And the very first command he gave to Adam and Eve, he said, love each other and have lots of kids. You see, he made us for that. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. That was his first command. He's not embarrassed by any of that, but he knows that when we misuse sex, when we misuse violence, when we do all these other rotten things, our mind becomes turned away from every type of character that God wants us to have so we could live faithfully and righteously in God's kingdom and be fit to live for all eternity. He wants us to use sex. He said it's not good for man to be alone. He wants us to be married normally. And when the time comes, as kings and priests, we have this honor that we will bind the kings with chains of iron. You remember back in Psalm 149. This honor have all his saints. When Christ comes back, we're going to have the honor of grabbing some of the Hitlers and others who may still be alive and binding them, those who are not dead. The beast and false prophet will already have been burned up in the lake of fire. We read that back in Revelation chapter 19. But many others will be around. This honor have his saints. And when David was a, one of the kingdoms of this world, Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And today it isn't. But when God's kingdom was of this world, King David went out and fought the battles of the eternal, as you know. And God blessed him and God guided him. And he said, shall I go straight at him this time? And God gave him the victory, the Philistines showed how God blessed him on one occasion and they, they started up again at him. He said, shall I go at him again? God said, no, go around behind them and when you hear the sound of marching in the mulberry trees, then you attack them because I'll be with you. And David did it the right way and God blessed him and they slaughtered the Philistines. God guided that as a physical nation. I don't mean the Philippines. <laughs> you know that... that was, I love our brethren in the Philippines, and my wife and I went there four years ago and maybe go back. But anyway, uh, that's what happened. God is not bashful. God wants us to learn to use these things the right way. The same thing about liquor. 
God shows you the little wine. Uh, the wine makes the heart merry. And, and uh, I take a little wine, Paul said to Timothy, for your stomach's sake and your often infirmities. He didn't say drink a bottle <laughs> like some men do or drink a half a bottle. Anyway, you've got to learn to use things the right way. But uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. We're to be converted. Convert, transform means change. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace, the gift that God gave Paul as an apostle to, to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly. Don't think you're so great. I'm certainly not so great. God has knocked me down again and again and again and helped me realize that I, I can do nothing. And I deeply understand that. I'm surrounded myself with a lot of men who are smarter than I am. Most of them are bigger and better looking and smarter. Hopefully they're younger too, in most cases, except for Mr. Partian. And he and I have to kind of guide the ship with our wisdom. Anyway, don't think of yourself too highly, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, all of us are in God's church, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ. We in the church are one body. We should function together as a team. He's building a team for all eternity. So we, being many, are one body and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, and that means inspired preaching most of the time in the New Testament, the way it's used, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. You see, if a minister has profound faith in God, then he can say, this is it. I'm telling you, know, if he's not sure, he kind of hesitates around. He doesn't have that same conviction if he himself does not believe it with all of his heart. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry, in the attitude of serving. He who teaches on teaching. Some are outstanding teachers. He who exhorts in exhortation, where you're able to correct and straighten people up in that kind of explanation. He who gives with liberality. Some of our successful, wealthier people have a great deal of money and perhaps their greatest service, they've got to pray and study and overcome like all the rest of us, but their greatest service might not be passing out psalm books as a deacon or something, but actually giving tens of thousands of dollars a year, which some of them do. And if they give liberally, God blesses them where they have plenty to give, and He's will, and continue to do that. He who leads with diligence. Those of you who have jobs as department heads or division heads or ministers or teachers in the work, do that with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Love each other. Forgive each other gladly, not grudgingly. Let us let love be without hypocrisy. Don't try to pretend it. Abhor what is evil. Don't be afraid to say, that's awful, that's rotten. Not that you attack someone who's made the... But, you know, in your attitude toward it, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And be deeply appreciative of what is good and of those who do practice that, of course, in the right way. So are you personally growing to be a better living sacrifice to God to give your life, your time, your talents, everything you have to God? Are you personally... Growing and serving your fellow man in personal kindness, 
in helping these other people in certain ways, in serving your brethren, in forgiveness, where you forgive others, encouragement, where you encourage others. Try to do that, brethren. All of us need to do that better. How much more are you doing yourself, actually doing and building the work of the living God? At the end of this age, God shows He would have a work. And frankly, this is the work of God that you are in right here. Why are you called now, my brethren? Mr. Armstrong used to explain that. I'm not come up with this by myself, but I thought about it, meditated, well, I've heard about 20 years ago or 30, and I see that he was true. He was right. The main reason we are called now is twofold. Not for our personal salvation. You might think that's the reason. No, God could call us in the millennium or God could call us in the great white throne judgment. So why are you and I called now, and you brethren in Cape Town, and you brethren out in Los Angeles or Portland or wherever, hearing this around the country and around the world? Why? First of all, God is preparing a team right now to do the work of God. He is using us to do the work of God. He wants you to be involved in that. That is the reason God is calling you now. He didn't have to call me for some other reason, but maybe he saw that I had a strong voice and tenaciousness or something where I would hang in there no matter what, and I was a mile runner. I didn't just give up after the 100-yard dash, you know, whatever. <laughs> and that doesn't prove anything. I'm just kidding. A lot of other weaknesses along with that. But God called me for reasons perhaps that he understood like that. And therefore... That's the reason he may have called me now. He's calling you to be part of the work of God. Some of you newer brethren say, well, it's easy for you to say that, Mr. Meredith, because you're the leader and you can blow your horn and blah, blah, blah. No, for 40 solid years, in fact, 43 years from the time I first came to college, I was not the leading one at all. And I was not the second leading one. I was the third or fourth or ninth or thirteenth. <laughs> the leading one at various times in the work of God. And I was not the leading one, and I submitted to God's government. And the record shows that. The record shows that if you look into it. I've had to practice what I preach now. That's the only reason I'm saying that. Please understand that. I didn't ask for this job. I literally reached out heartfeltly to three or four other leading men, and they know that. I don't want to mention their names. It would make them feel bad. Tried to get them to come with us. We've got to do something. The first one I talked to about it was a man that was telling me how awful it was in detail. He said, they're going to change everything. And I said, Joe, we're going to have to get do something. His name was not Joe, by the way. <laughs> and he began to waffle as we say, oh, well, yeah, but and he didn't do anything. Then I told three or four of my other close friends, we got to do something. No one was willing to do anything. I thought, Rod, you've got to do something. You're the only one of the older evangelists that really understands what's happening. You've got to do something. No one else will do anything. So that's what I did, and that's why I'm here. If they had done it, I'm sure I would have followed them, as I always followed Mr. Armstrong and followed Mr. Ted Armstrong to the degree I could do when he was cooperative with his father. And followed Mr. Dukach. When Mr. Dukach was made the pastor general and called me at about 6.15 that morning, Mr. Armstrong's death, I came by church administration where his office was. He'd been over that at that time. And I said, Mr. I said, Mr. Dukach, 
I want you to know that I will back you and help you in every way I can as long as you know you continue to preach the truth and so on. But anyway, so that's was the office there and I did try to honor that office as long as he was teaching the truth. When he turned totally away from the truth, then I could no longer follow uh, that way. I still didn't start calling Joe or some bad name. I still call him Mr. Dukach because he was an older man and he was in an office. That's fine. He just didn't understand, I hope, for his sake. But anyway, we'd better be sure that we're really going all out as lively sacrifices, living sacrifices to give our lives to God with all our heart and all our being and let God use us powerfully in all these areas that he describes here. So how much are you going all out in doing and building the work of God in every way you can? through your example to others, through your prayers, through your generous tithes and offerings, through your reaching out to others to call them, to encourage them, maybe to stop by and bring some to church who don't have a ride, and calling the sick and calling all those who are... Mister, I can't do all that. I'm not trying to make some miserable excuse, but at age 75 and a half, I'm all tuckered out by the end of the day, and I can't do that as much as I used to. And we've got churches all over and calls. I was on the line with an outline minister night before last who called me and different ones call at night and on the weekends and I can't go around the world on the telephone and also go all over here and visit everyone individually. I think you can figure that out. But a lot of you can do that. You can do that with each other and for each other. How much are you doing that in every way you can and praying fervently and fasting and praying and serving to build the work of the living God at the end of the age? Turn to John, if you would, chapter 4. The Gospel of John, chapter 4, and beginning here in verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged Jesus here, when he was talking to this woman at the well, Rabbi, eat. But he said, I have food to eat that you do not know. Therefore the disciples said, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said, My food, see his nourishment, his sustenance, Frankly, his reason for being, if you want to use that term, is to do the will of God who sent me and to finish his work. To finish his work. That's my food. That's what keeps me going. That's why I'm here. And probably that's the only reason God has kept me going beyond age 70, to do the work of God. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages. Think of that, brethren. Here is the Son of God telling us if we put our whole being in God's church and in God's work in getting this message out and all these ways I've outlined and others, we're going to receive wages for all eternity. And it cannot be compared with anything will be given in this life. And he gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Yes, God is going to powerfully bless us for our part in his work. And we want to really understand that. So, brethren, as we think about this, we must use our time and our talents, our resources, our money, our energy, everything we have. And we must, as I said, learn to use our time because our life is our time to glorify the great God who's called us now. He's called us, first of all, 
to do this work. That's why we're called now, to do the work of God. And secondly, and I didn't get to point number two before, I did a <laughs> second, it's not in my notes, i just uh, throwing it in. You get this for free. <laughs> the second reason he's called us is to prepare, prepare a people for God, to prepare to be kings and priests in tomorrow's world. That's why we're called now that all of us as a team working together, interacting with each other, submitting to one another, cooperating as a unit, as a team, God sees if we're working together now. He's watching those things. Yes, He is, even in this life. It tells Him a great deal. Who's really on the team or who's sitting out on the edge? Who's a fringer? Who's a floater? We have floaters in the churches of God. And I've talked to some of my friends in United and elsewhere. They know they have their floaters too. People float over there and then they'll float over here and then they'll float over somewhere else and they just kind of go around and they'll find these little groups and go here and there. They don't seem to want to be in any one place and it's not that they couldn't figure it out. It's that they don't want anyone to tell them what to do. In the majority of cases, that's what it gets down to. All right, if they don't want anyone to tell them what to do, then what are they? In a sense, they're rebels. Are they ever, ever going to be in God's kingdom? No, they will not be in God's kingdom unless and until they get over that and fervently repent of that. God is not going to have a bunch of friends, well, I'm not sure of this, and I want to go over there, and I'll just do what I want to do, and no one's going to tell me anything. They can't be in God's kingdom with that attitude. He can't put them out over Alpha Centauri or Pluto or Saturn or say, I'm going to, they're going to run this place out here faithfully, or ten cities or five cities. How can he trust them? He's tried to trust them now. He's called them. They know the truth. They were in the worldwide church. Some of them were in my classes. They float around here and there. What's wrong with them? Vanity, selfishness, lust, and greed. They want to do what they want to do. And they have self-will. So they go floating around. But we need to be on the team and we need to use our time and our talents and everything we have to be part of the team and to get this job done. I have used part of this quote in articles, but I wanted to bring to you today because it's really hit me again recently and I don't have time to reread this book again, but it's my favorite book on management. Some of you remember several weeks ago, the greatest management expert of all time, which he's been called, and I'm sure he is, his name is Peter Drucker, a Dutchman who came over here. Very brilliant man. And he was tutoring, and many times personally even, some of the top leaders in American industry, the captains of industry, the heads of IBM and the heads of General Motors and General Electric and you name it. In many cases, some of the big New York banks and others. And the President of the United States occasionally would call him and all this kind of thing. And that's on the record. They knew him. They deeply respected this man and his approach to management. And so he wrote this, this man who is one of the most outstanding men in the world, perhaps the most outstanding man in that whole field of management and leadership and that particular kind of leadership. He said the supply of time, we're talking here about time. Your life is time composed. As this clock ticks away, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, Three seconds of your life is gone. You have to learn to think that way. Don't waste your time. You're wasting your life. That's not wrong to relax once in a while, but do it purposefully and within limits and in the right way for the right reason. 
You say, you can't do it perfectly. No, I don't do it perfectly all the time myself. None of us do. But we should try to use our time per perfectly because that's so important. That's a vital part of our life. The supply of time is totally inelastic. No matter how high the demand, the supply will not go up. There is no price for it and no marginal utility curve for it. Moreover, time is totally perishable and cannot be stored. Yesterday's time is gone forever and will never come back. Think about that. Never come back. You can't go back and use that time again. It's gone. I think about all the foolishness that I used to get into just wandering around or reading comic books or watching my friends smoke and play uh, these uh, uh, machines. Uh, well, the little, bounce, uh, little balls bounced around. I forget what they call them. Pinball machines, wasn't it? back then, just standing and doing nothing. No exercise, no development. A little bit of that might be all right just to be with my friends and kid around. But the hours and hours that were spent on stuff like that, I think, wow, if I had that time back and would have been reading books like this, books about leadership, books about management, books on success, accomplishment, history, worthwhile things, great autobiographies, and certainly the Bible, if God had called me way back then, wow, how far ahead would I be? I wasted all that time. Yesterday's time is gone forever. Time is therefore always an exceedingly short supply. Time is totally irreplaceable. Within limits, we can substitute one resource for another. Copper for aluminum, for instance. We can substitute capital, it means money, for human labor. We can use more knowledge or more brawn. But there is no substitute for time. Everything requires time. It is the only or is the one truly universal condition. All work takes place in time and uses up time. Yet most people take for granted this unique, irreplaceable and necessary resource. Nothing else, perhaps, distinguishes, listen to this, brethren, nothing else distinguishes effective executives as much as their tender, loving care of time. I've never forgotten that quote. The top leaders in the world, and he gives many examples here later on in this chapter, have learned to use their time, not waste their time. That's one reason they are there. That didn't mean they used their time perfectly, and of course God didn't call them, but within their own sphere of knowledge and, and their opportunities, they did use their time very well in most cases and didn't waste the time. So time is tremendously important. So think about that. How are you and I, you men, you ladies, you young people, you all need to think about your youth, use of time. You know, many of you young people not here just in this church, we have several here that in their teens and early 20s, but around the world, you young people back in Kansas City and over in Nashville and down in Florida, I preached to and all around the world. You're still young. You have your life ahead of you. How are you using your time? You could do tremendous things if you use your time now. And another thing to think about, most young people are live, let's say, much more rich lives, much more successful lives, much more meaningful lives, young people, if you are involved in a cause, if you're involved in a cause bigger than yourself. When President Kennedy got the youth involved in 
one of these programs he had, they all got very excited about that. There are other programs, of course, that have been proposed and carried out since. But what's the most important single program on the earth? Is it beating up on the Iraqis? Is it, you know, is it making more money? Is it selling more beer? Is it, you know, is it becoming the best tennis player? Or the best basketball player? The best entertainer to make people laugh or whatever? No, you all know the answer. The most important single activity on the face of this earth by far, and I will say that if I die tomorrow, that's still the case. It was here before I came and it'll be here after I go. The most important single activity on earth is the work of the living God reaching out to the world and helping the whole world understand the whole purpose of human existence. The whole reason for their life and why they're drawing breath and helping them prepare for the very reason God gives all of us life and breath. The kingdom of God being a member of the divine family because God is reproducing Himself. And there's nothing more important than that. Nothing else is even close to that activity. And yet here all of you in this room are right at the headquarters of the work of the living God today at the end of an age. And it's hard for you to understand that fully because you see my mistakes or you'll see the mistakes of others up here. You'll see how Mr. Pyle does not even appreciate singing, you know, and my singing particularly. I'm kidding now. <laughs> Going from the sublime to ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, you'll see our human nature. that We're all human and we kid around. We try to have fun in the right way and we'll make mistakes. I make mistakes every day of my life. I know that. But I try not to. I try to grow and see the big picture better and better and do the work of God better and better within the sphere of my talents and within the sphere of my older years where I don't have the same energy I used to have 30 or 50 years ago. Because I was first ordained 56 years ago and I had a lot more energy back at that time than I do, than I do now. No, I guess I was ordained 53 years ago, baptized 56 years ago. Someone will say, you're lying. No, I get things mixed up too <laughs> uh, on those things occasionally. Anyway, we want to do the best we can with what we've got to do with. So how, you young people and you older people, how does God view, as He looks down from heaven, how does God see you using the precious life and the precious time that He's given you? Are you letting these opportunities slip through your fingers? Are you studying Praying, growing, overcoming, learning to do better, doing everything you can to help the work of God as well and preparing your talents and abilities to help in whatever you can in the church of God. Everyone can't be on the payroll in the work of God. And most of you wouldn't want to necessarily do that. But all you brethren around the world can certainly have an opportunity to serve right where you are, serving others in your church, in your community, through your warmth and your love and giving and helping and encouraging and calling the weak and the sick and having visiting programs under the guidance of the ministry and welcome them into church. And if you see someone missing, give them a call and, and say, we're sorry, we're praying about you. How are you doing? And helping every way you can. How, how can we, in every way we can, seek God more urgently? We need to think about that. Can you seek God at the end of this age more urgently than you are? Remember that, this this statement throughout the Bible. Daniel began to seek God, and God heard that prayer. 
Others did that. And every time you find that, you know, in the case of some man of God back there, wow, God really intervened. When they began to turn to God and to seek God. One thing that would be a big help to you in all of this too is this principle that I've mentioned before. But please get this down if you're taking notes and please put it in your mind, all of you. One of the big helps to me and, and most of us, I've read whole articles on this and there are whole books on it, we are all creatures of habit. If you can learn now and pray and meditate and study about it, try now, and you young people especially, you have a chance now to ingrain within the way you think and act a right set of habits, all kinds of habits, you know, to build your mind, your body, your personality, your character, all those things. Get an education. Build your mind. Build your body. Learn to discipline yourself and get the right amount of exercise, the right amount of good, clean, wholesome food, and think positive thoughts. Not negative thoughts, positive thoughts. Avoid bodily injury and all the rest of it. Avoid these bad habits of, of drinking a lot of liquor or smoking or anything like that. And character. But then another thing is to build just key habits in the way you use your time through the day. Develop a regular time for Bible study. Do you out there, all of you, have a regular time? If you don't, you, well, I'll just, I'll just do it when the Spirit moves me. Oh, is the Spirit going to move you every day as it should? Probably not. I found that in my own life as an evangelist. If I don't make myself set a certain time or times to study, it usually doesn't happen. You've got to learn to get your life organized and set a time for Bible study. And you can do it in any number of different ways. I used to have certain times when I would study the Bible when I was in college. Sometimes now I plan to get up and rather than reading the newspaper or papers as thoroughly as I used to, I'll try to read just a chapter or two of Proverbs or a chapter or two of Psalms or something at the beginning quickly and then later on in the afternoon study again maybe some longer book or whatever, so I can get in two studies, but at least start out the day with Bible study to that extent. Do I do that perfectly? No. I don't do anything perfectly. But basically, I try to get that habit. So I'm not bragging. God knows I have a lot of weaknesses. I try to set a regular time for prayer. I found that if I wait around, then the phone rings or I walk in the office and Monica says the building's on fire and I'm kidding. <laughs> She's never said that. But you know what I mean. Something's going on. And my mind gets all distracted and I can't pray. I've got to do this and got to do that. And uh, someone's on the phone from something. The other day I came back and someone had called me right during the noon hour and wanted to be called right back or whatever. These things happen. You better pray before you get out of your house. One of my most Closest friends also, a very a lovable fellow, got confused later, but wonderful personality and writer and Bible teacher, our older brethren will remember David John Hill, whom I went around the world with and climbed all the high hills around Pasadena with and so on. And he said, if I get up and go out, or he said, brethren, if we get up and go out of our house without prayer in the morning, it's like getting up and going out naked. And you want to go, ooh, I'm naked. <laughs> he illustrated it real vividly. and said some funny things. I forget what it was. Not nasty, but only John could put it that way. Had a lot of humor. Ooh, you know, no clothes. Well, that's what happens. If you go out of your house and start toward your work or whatever and you haven't prayed yet, 
chances are the day will not go near as well as it would have if you had prayed. Now, you may not want to have an hour of prayer in the morning. It's good to try to pray 30 or 45 minutes the first thing if you can. I'm advising that. I think it's a very good thing if you will. But sometimes I get caught and can't pray but more 20 minutes or something, but then I try to make up for it later in the day. And uh, at least if you can pray at the minimum 15 or 20 minutes before you leave the house, then you establish that contact with God and then you can pray in your mind as you wove through the day, the spirit of prayer, and then get back down on those knees again once or twice, preferably twice, but certainly once later in the day, on your knees, both knees before God, one knee before a king, and pray to God, lift up your hands, lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting, the Bible says. Talk to God as a habit every day. Then learn also to meditate regularly. You think, well, I'll meditate when the Spirit moves me. Well, then you probably never meditate. But if you set a habit of meditating regularly at a certain time, perhaps Sabbath morning, you don't have to go anywhere until you have to leave for church at 1 or 1.30 or whatever, that might be a good time for most of you. Or if you've heard good sermons and want to meditate, you could pray, meditate Sunday morning when you get up. I wouldn't wait till Saturday night if you've had a bottle of wine or, I mean, a glass of wine, <laughs> a bottle of beer, you're not going to meditate too well that way. But you know what I mean. Meditate when you're alert. Maybe you could get up Sunday morning and, and study the Bible and then just take time to think through. Take spiritual inventory. Think, how am I doing? How does God in heaven view my progress this past week, this past month, this past year? Am I more fully keeping the first commandment to love great, the great God with all my heart and strength and mind? Am I learning to love my neighbor as myself? Am I growing closer to God in every way? Am I developing more as a servant of the living God and His work and His church to get the work of God going better? How am I doing in all these areas and other areas? If you're weak in some special sin and you have a tendency to lie or to exaggerate or to uh, put others down in the way you talk or to drink too much or to get, lose your temper, meditate on that. Think, what are the steps that I should be taking to conquer this problem. Meditate on it. Meditate regularly. And of course, then you want to meditate on the law of God like David did. Literally get out the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, and start going down the line and thinking, how am I? You can meditate different ways at different times. How am I keeping each one of the commandments? And other things you can do in meditating. Then, fourthly, you want to build a regular habit of fasting. A lot of you only fast. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but probably most of you don't fast more than two or three times a year. Several of you have told me that you only fast on the Day of Atonement, and you're glad I said another day of fasting, so at least you fast one other day if the church calls the fast. You fast twice. You should fast more than that unless you're in terrible health. If you have bad health, go to the doctor and find out. Get a checkup. But if you're in good health, as I am under the circumstances, even in my age, you can fast about once a month. Set aside a time about once a month and just take that day off or most of the day off and, and take extra time to study, to pray, to meditate while you're fasting. If you just starve yourself, it doesn't do that much good. But if you have the habit of fasting, of humbling yourself and seeking God 
concentrating on getting closer to God with an entire 24 hours of fasting and prayer one day a month is like a spiritual pickup, you see. It gives you that extra energy, spiritual energy that you probably need. <clears throat> and then, as you meditate and as you fast, get a regular habit of reviewing how your time is being used, how your energies and talents are being used to prepare you for the kingdom of God, to serve others now, and to do the work of the living God here and all over this earth. That's very, very important. In Mark chapter 16, turn there with me if you would, again a very uh, classic uh, scripture, Mark 16. Beginning in verse 14, here after Christ was resurrected, he said this, Afterward he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief. Even the apostles were weak. The Holy Spirit was not yet given, you see. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, and brethren, as you read this carefully, you see he is talking to all his people because he knew, Christ certainly knew, they were going to be dead and another 2,000 years would ensue after that. Go unto all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the job of God's church. It's said a number of times in a number of ways. Go unto all the world. We read about Mr. Rajan Moses going down to Indonesia. We read about him going into India. We read about Mr. Bruce Tyler going up to Indonesia or Sumatra or in these other island places. We read about Mr. Kinnear Penman going up to these islands and places that are dangerous. We read Mr. Sid Hull and the danger he's in in South Africa. We read about Mr. Uh, uh, Dr. Douglas Winnell, our friend and brother right here. I don't assign him to go down to Africa. I never agree. I, he wanted to. He's willing to go down there even though it's dangerous, and he knows that, and he's going out to western Kenya because he knows he's just been working with some of those elders and prospective elders, I should say, to replace Mr. Owino who left us, and he wants to stabilize them. So he himself leaves this comfort here and goes way down there to serve God's people. And I appreciate that very much. I'm going to have to ask him to stay here more. I'll get on his case. <laughs> I'll say, Doug, don't wander off all the time. But he, he's doing a great job. But I don't want him to get killed, and he can let these younger guys to do that. We can let Mr. Parting go down there more often. <coughs> I don't want Shirley to faint. She'll come after me with a rolling pin. <laughs> anyway, but we can let some of the younger guys do that, go down to Africa and do those things. But he wants to set the stage there and build the foundation. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And he who does not believe will be condemned, or as the Greek may be rightly translated, be judged. Most of them will be judged, not condemned in that sense, because they're not called yet. So we need to have that attitude. And again, you young people, we're in a crusade. All you young guys out there, we're in a crusade. And you young people over in Kansas City and Nashville and Florida and all around the country, we're in a crusade. This is it. It's a lot more important than, you know, what's his name, the great football coach, whoever you may choose. And uh, we got to remember that. Or great basketball coach, uh, coaches or great leaders of any other sort. 
We're in a crusade. Eisenhower called it a crusade in Europe, the Second World War. Well, they won a, good, a big war. That's fine. But I'll tell you, our crusade is so much more important than all those crusades, helping human beings understand the whole purpose of human existence. And we have that opportunity. And if you get involved heartfeltly, not say, well, we know people's problems. Yes, you know people's problems. They've always had people's problems. Every time. You go back to King David, the man God loved. That he had problems. One son raped his sister, and then the other son turned around and killed him. Absalom, you know, killed the other one. And then uh, later Absalom turned on his dad and tried to overthrow and kill him. And then the other uh, son tried to turn on his dad near the end and, and overthrow him. Probably would have killed him too. Just one thing after the other. And David had all kinds of problems. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband. God doesn't dwell on the sexy part. He calls it the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Because Uriah paid with his life. That was even more serious perhaps when you think about it. Uriah the Hittite paid with his life. A faithful lieutenant. And David sort of lied to him. Sent him back with a message for his own life was to be taken. Told Joab the general. Send him into the heat of battle. And the sword slays one as well as another so don't worry about it. Joab got the message. He knew what he wanted. And the king did it. They were carnal. Okay, King David wants this. We'll just send old, old uh, what's his name up here? And uh, he, will, he will get killed. Uriah the Hittite. And yet David repented. Fell on his face for seven solid days. Begged God to forgive him. And God did forgive him. And he will be our boss in a few years in the kingdom of God. Because God is the great forgiver. This is the church of the forgiven. We always want to understand that. So don't say, oh well, I see human nature. Yes, we had lots of it when I came to Ambassador College. I remember we had a couple of elderly women that were kind of sweet. I mean, they weren't wicked in this way, but it was kind of sweet. Dick Armstrong and I went to the feast and uh, together in Dick's Plymouth back in 1950. And uh, these, uh, he had a pet duck. And a box, pasteboard box, he had at the back of the of the car, and uh, he just enjoyed animals. And his was a duck. And one woman's name was Winky, and the other, and that was her next name, something else. I forget. They're both dead long since, so you won't know who they are. But uh, they were interesting women. And so they came up to the window when they found Dick had this duck, and they were saying, "Oh, you have a duck." And I was there with Dick. We were getting ready to go somewhere, and and uh, they said, "Can we have the box?" And Dick had a sense of humor, and he was real sharp. He kind of had this thin mustache, and he kind of his smile crinkled, and he knew something was up. He said, "Well, why do you want? The oh, well, don't worry. But, but, well, I'll let you have the box. Just tell me why you want the box." So he finally talked him into letting him know why they wanted the box. They wanted the the duck uh, manure so they could soak their feet in it because the duck manure would suck the poisons out of their body. They'd been reading, you know, some people are into, into some kind of tea and sunflower seeds and all this health food stuff. They were heavy into it, believe me. <laughs> they were heavy into it. Of course, Dick just laughed. He let them have it, though. <laughs> and then he got the box back. But the, the, the good stuff was all gone. Anyway, <laughs> at that point. <laughs> but, you know, we had a lot of odd people when I came to college. They weren't all perfect. Some of them were into worse things than that. But, you know, the human nature. You say, well, this can't be God's work. We've got people interested in duck manure. Yes, 
It was a little tiny work, a little tiny college, a little tiny church. And when people showed up, we didn't judge them. We welcomed them. We tried to help them get the big picture. I don't know if these two ladies ever got the big picture, frankly. But, you know, maybe they did. I'm not their judge. I liked them fine. They just were odd. God calls the weak of the world. But the work of God was being done because that man, Herbert W. Armstrong, had the big picture and he was up there driving himself into his 60s and 70s and way up into his 80s, getting the work of God going all over this earth. And the sun never set on the work of God, as we used to say. And I personally have visited our offices in Britain, visited our offices in France, in Switzerland, in Germany, in Australia, New Zealand, and the Philippines, and seen those buildings. And all around the world, we had those offices then. And God allowed it at that time during the Philadelphia era, which we're not in now, unfortunately. But we have to be happy with the day of small things. So God tells us, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we want to do that the best we can, brethren. And is more of your time, energy, and resources being poured into the very work of God each year as you grow? Remember Mr. Armstrong's statement, our, our, our spiritual level is determined by how much our heart is in the work of God. And he put it in different ways. Our spiritual zeal, he would say, is reflected in how much our hearts are in the work of God. Our spiritual condition, I've heard him say, is greatly reflected by how much our hearts are in the very work of God. This is that work. And Mr. Partin and Ames and I and others are carrying on that work. We know what it was like. We were there. We helped build that work. And we're carrying on that same work. We have among us floaters, as I've said. They float around here and there. I don't know of any floaters here in this church. There may be. I'm not preaching at any of you. But I know there are those. And they are people that kind of come and go and they hear about some exciting guy down the road and he's got some new technical point or some Greek word or some new thing in prophecy. So they'll leave our church and go over there. A while back I was way off somewhere visiting this church out west and about five or seven of our, I thought, leading members weren't even there. I said, why? Oh, they're over to hear so-and-so. Well, so-and-so doesn't really have a work in the sense at all. He just floats around himself and... No real big TV program. And he just has some new ideas here and there. And people go to hear him. And that's a shame. Are you big enough to try to get the picture and find out where Christ is working and in spite of human nature, be where that is and be part? Brethren, think about it. Are you going to be part of the team, the team that works together that Jesus Christ is preparing to be kings and priests in tomorrow's world? And to do the work of God today, not just float around here and there, you know, to hear some piquant point and be distracted. These people cause division. So think about that. That's foolish as God looks down from heaven once again, just using that phrase. Uh, how can he be sure that these people are dedicated, that they're loyal, that they're unified, to soon be literal kings and priests in the kingdom of God. He can't think of them that way. You know that. Because they're here and there and they're not sure what to believe and they won't commit to anything. And so they float and they float and they float and they're fringers off on the fringe. Well, God doesn't appreciate that. Some of you may be new here and need to check us out. That's fine. Do that. 
do that. That's fine. When you first show up, you may take several months to be sure. I certainly did. I came to Ambassador College back in late September, late August, early September. And then about four or five months later, I was baptized. Even then, that was quick, but I was in college hearing it all day long and proving it. And I went around checking up on Mr. Armstrong and I said, where does the money come from and who counts it? And I later on he chuckled and he said, Rod, he said, when you first came, I heard you were all over the campus checking up on me. <laughs> he told me that five or ten years later. He said, I didn't mind. I had nothing to hide. And I found little old Mrs. Olson who was over the counting the money and asked her who, who gets it and where does it go and does Mr. Armstrong get it? Oh, no, we take it to the bank and he never sees it and she told me the whole procedure, and I checked with others. I double-checked. I'm from Missouri. <laughs> and I began to realize, no, this is the work of God, in spite of human nature. Did Mr. Armstrong have problems? Yes. Did Dick have problems? Yes. Did Ted have problems? Yes. Did our dean have problems? Yes. He wasn't even in the church. And the old French professor and Spanish professor, no relation to Mr. Pardin, was always saying, when this thing folds up, and sort of making fun of Mr. Armstrong. And he made fun of Mr. Armstrong publicly, in a sense, semi-publicly, right in the Spanish class one day. And I said, you need to stop that. You can't talk against the president of this college that way. I was student body president by that time. And he said, whoa, whoa, And he yelled at me. I said, well, if you don't like it, let's go right up and see Mr. Armstrong. And so uh, he didn't, but I did. And uh, Mr. Armstrong didn't fire him because... Professors came pretty short. <laughs> they were kind of hard to get, but he told them to calm it, I guess. But at any rate, we had interesting times. Things were not perfect. But the work of God was being done in spite of human nature. And it is today, my brethren. And I hope you can see that and understand that. So as God looks down from heaven, does He see you're really part of the team? You're yielded, you're working together to get this message out with your whole heart? and to help others participate in the very kingdom of God to be set up soon on this earth? Are you learning to love and to worship and adore the great God and obey Him in every possible way? Are you learning to genuinely love your neighbor and lay down your heart for your brethren in every way, plus getting the message out to the millions out there? Back in Daniel chapter 11, if you turn with me there, Daniel chapter uh, 11 and beginning in verse 40, he talks about these Arab nations I've been talking about at the beginning of this sermon. They are going to get together, by the way. And at that time, the, at the end, our time, the king of the south shall attack him. He's been talking about the king of the north, this coming beast power who will be up north of Jerusalem and Europe, the coming Hitler, the coming dictator. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. Interesting wording. Because Adolf Hitler's uh, forces were they called his armies like they used the Blitzkrieg, lightning war. In other words, they came very swiftly compared to what it was in World War I. And that's the way it will be today, like a whirlwind with tanks and Polaris submarines and all these other things. He said back there, chariots, horsemen. They didn't have words for these modern implements of war. They used the ones that they knew. He shall enter into the glorious land. He's going to come right down into Palestine. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. And the capital of Jordan is literally that. It's called Ammon, the capital of Jordan. And right south of Ammon is a place called Petra, the rock city of Jordan there, where might the place of safety might be. This area 
of course, will be protected. They're not going to be there somehow. But news from the east and north, verse 44, shall trouble him, so he'll go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many, this coming beast. North and east of Jerusalem is Russia and China. That's about the only place you're going to get a 200 million man army that the Bible describes. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. He'll come to his end and no one will help him. And we read about that in Revelation 19, verse 20, how Christ will seize the beast and the false prophet and throw them into the lake of fire. No one will deliver them from Christ's hand. Verse or chapter 12, at that time, what time? The time of the end. He's been talking about that time. Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who's found written in the book. Brethren, if we give our lives to God now, if we're involved in the crusade to get this message out now, if we're involved in helping ourselves and helping our friends and our brethren every way we can now to become like Jesus Christ, to reflect Jesus Christ, to love our God with all our heart, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to have the character of God then we will be written in that book, the book of life. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, the faithful saints, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise, and I pray we all are learned to be wise in this way, shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness, how can we turn many to righteousness? We can't turn many to righteousness by splitting all up and having this guy off start this little work here and that work there. It's never been done like that. It's not being done that way today. They usually go off and just cause trouble and have the vanity of maybe a dozen or five dozen people following. What good does it do? Nothing. It just divides God's work and divides God's people. They that turn many to righteousness and are part in the very work of the living God shall shine like the stars forever and ever. So let's get the picture. Let's understand, as God looks down from heaven, how do you use your life? How do you use your time? Are you really involved in what is important? In getting the message out, and loving God, and loving your neighbor, and doing the work of God, and preparing now to do the work of God and preparing also and helping others prepare to be those kings and priests, people who've been willing to work together as a team in this life that Christ can trust to be on His team soon in tomorrow's world.